Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air. And I must say, we do have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, segment. But I know I've said it before, and I could say it again. There's always a lot of ground to cover in a segment, regardless of what has been uh, discussed per uh, podcast um, book topic series. But to me, that's important because, you know, it's one thing to listen to a podcast session on a topic, but you want to come away knowing that you've learned something that you didn't know before, but you want to come away learning the greater nine yards. Of course, to me, that would be more like saying the whole nine yards, but you want to learn more than what was taught, say, you want to learn more than what was taught to you, say, maybe five years ago on a particular subject, or even better, it might be better to say that you you want to learn more about something than what was never even taught to you before. Uh, long story short, I had dinner with my dad last night, and I asked him, I said, Dad, when you were growing up, did you learn anything about Bacon's Rebellion? And he said to me, he said, you know, Kirk, the only thing I really ever remembered learning about Bacon's Rebellion was the fact that there was a gentleman named Nathaniel Bacon, and all we really learned about was that he was just a, a troublemaker, but that's all we really knew. In other words, based upon what you've shared with me, we, when I was growing up, that information was never taught to us. Perhaps it could have been that maybe there there had not been a whole lot of research done at the time, but also, too, um, not to sound political or anything, but sometimes the truth can be uh, distorted. It can be... Um, it could be um, tweaked. It could be twisted. Um, sometimes the truth can be um, hidden from us. Uh, and, of course, oftentimes that's not always a good thing, depending on the matter that's at stake. Of course, one thing I can think of when it comes to uh, the truth being distorted or um, information that might still be kept from us um, to me pertains to the Kennedy assassination. Of course, I do know five years ago that Many, many um, documents or information that had been classified up until 2017, those uh, documents have been released. But I still have to wonder just how much more information about the Kennedy assassination is the government withholding. What I do know is that uh, Jackie Kennedy's book will not come out until the year 2067. If I'm still alive in 2067, I'll be 88 years old. In other words, uh, Jackie Kennedy, uh, long story short, had an interview with uh, William Manchester about three or four years after her husband was assassinated. And in the interview, she talked about whom she was convinced was responsible behind her husband's death. The reason why this book won't come out until the year 2067 is because she wanted it removed from a couple of uh, generations. She wanted it removed um, well after she had passed away. Of course, she died back in 1994. Her son, John Jr., tragically died uh, back in 1999. Still find it hard to believe that he died. Caroline's the only one left, but um, even after uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, uh, she and her children left uh, to go overseas because she was afraid that she and her children would be next. So, uh, basically... Uh, you know, sometimes withholding information may not always be a bad thing, 
but in the case with uh, the, the Kennedy assassination and with Jackie Kennedy's interview, she wanted uh, basically the, um, she didn't want her children to have to uh, undergo intense uh, scrutiny of what they thought was responsible, of what they, of whom they thought may have been responsible for their dad's assassination, given just how young they were. So not trying to get off topic, but it, the point of the matter is that oftentimes, you know, we get told something, but we have to ask ourselves, did we really get told the whole story? And even um, from this book, uh, Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America, I only learned uh, basic stuff about this, uh, about this topic, but I started beginning to learn more about uh, Bacon's Rebellion uh, and they still have this on display at uh, Jamestown, and I strongly recommend, if, if any of you all haven't been to uh, the Jamestown uh, Museum, I strongly recommend doing it, but they do have a section on uh, Bacon's Rebellion, most notably a 3D movie of how it all uh, transpired. I strongly recommend it. Um, I would go back and see it again. But one thing I do know is that if I'm not careful, we'll lose out on time and may not be able to get everything uh, covered in this uh, segment. So it's time to get that ball rolling and let's get our seatbelts fastened and uh, let's get the show on the road. So our first uh, leadoff question is going to be the following. When did English personnel, and what I mean by personnel here, folks, are uh, commissioners. Okay, who are the English com commissioners? here. I mean, these commissioners are important because uh, their names will be mentioned quite a bit in the segment. Their names were Sir John Barry, along with a Francis Morrison. When did English personnel, via commissioners Sir John Barry and Francis Morrison, along with a 70-man soldier force, officially arrive into the Chesapeake Bay? Did they arrive on January 1st of 1677, or did they arrive on January uh, the 29th of 1677? They arrived on January the 29th of 1677 via ship. <laughs> of course, that's the only way you can um, make it from um, Britain or England, I should say, over to um, the New World. You know, we don't have um, we don't have any airplanes, folks. So we got to keep it in mind that we the only way we're going to be able to make it over is by ship and we also have to keep in mind, too, that the that in order to make it over by ship, we have to rely upon favorable winds. So, in other words, we don't have uh, modern-day um, key ignitions or uh, keys themselves that we can just turn on our engine and, um, you know, back the boat up, and, and there we go, uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean. No, we have to rely upon favorable winds. And once those winds are favorable to where uh, a boat can move, uh, the boat is uh, pretty much set to go. So, yes, they uh, the commissioners, along with the 70-man um, soldier force, arrive into the Chesapeake Bay on January the 29th of 1677. The ship they come on is referred to as the Bristol. I found that interesting because I know there is a Bristol, Virginia, in southwest Virginia, right along the Virginia-Tennessee line. And then there is Bristol, England, which just so happens to be south in the southwest part of England, uh, southwest of London. Interesting, uh, to say the least, in terms of ge geography. Two days later, on January the 31st of 1677, uh, Governor Berkeley comes aboard the Bristol. 
uh, comes aboard the ship, the Bristol, rather. Now, Governor Berkeley, I'll tell you all this much right now, he's not in the best of shape. And what I mean by that, it has nothing to do with being in poor health or being obese. By What I mean by him not being in the best of shape is that he's, he's worn out. He is worn out from this from this crisis that he's been dealing with. And I could see how a crisis, no matter how big or small, can take a toll on those who are um, not only not only will it take a toll on everyone involved, but it takes a toll on the leaders. In other words, you know, leaders either uh, prevail or they um, are removed by means of violence or they step down because of um, because of a failure to um make amends from uh, within. So as for uh, Governor Berkeley, he is in the process of recovering from a fever. Uh, the commissioner, I found this interesting, the commissioner's instructions all along, what, what do you all think the commissioner's instructions were all along? To quash the existing or current rebellion. So in other words, they were under the assumption that when they arrived to England, there would still be rebellion. There would still be this hostile conflict to where the 70-man soldier force and eventually another uh, soldier force did arrive. But as of right now, there is a 70-man force. They, the commissioners believe that, this will, that their presence alone, along with the troops, by the time they arrive is going to be enough, uh, enough of a presence to where they can pretty much quash what's left of this rebellion. However, when Commissioners uh, Morrison and Barry, along with their 70-man force, arrive, they are shocked to discover that the exact opposite has happened. And what do you think the exact opposite is here, folks? William Berkeley is alive. Nathaniel Bacon is dead. They were hoping to be able to have the opportunity to capture Nathaniel Bacon and send him 3,000 miles across the ocean to be tried in England for um, inciting a rebellion, or rather, I should say, inciting an insurrection. Okay, with Nathaniel Bacon being dead, isn't it fair to say that the commissioners, being Commissioner Barry and Morrison, would it be fair to say that, in their eyes, that this rebellion ought to be over? Yes. But just because Nathaniel Bacon is dead, it doesn't mean that men below him, whom were just as passionate as he was about this whole movement, remember what we talked about from the previous podcast, how with Nathaniel Bacon's death, that there were those in line ready to take his place, those whom were not only ready to take command, uh, but also were just willing to uh, carry on his legacy for as long as it uh, was necessary. So, okay, yes, for Commissioners Barry and Morrison, okay, this rebellion's over. So why are we even here? <laughs> well, the, the Commissioner's recent information, folks, is it up to date or is it out of date? It's out of date. The Commissioner's up-to-date recent information 
that they acquired um, a few days prior to January 29th when they arrived. They obtained the information from a passing vessel, in other words, a vessel that was going in the opposite direction. So remember, you know, we don't have we don't have cell phones, so we don't we can't get text alerts saying, "Uh oh." Um, just to let you all know that there have been some drastic changes that have taken place since the uh, previous, um, since the original uh, news response was given to you all, you know, a couple of months uh, earlier. You know, we don't have a telephone, we don't have uh, email, so we're pretty much uh, stuck with, we go by information that's given to us, even if it's, um, even if it was given to us a few months ahead of time, we're we're still under this this assumption that nothing has changed. But here we are now. Uh, the commissioners now come to the realization that no, things have uh, drastically changed in the last uh, couple of months. So, okay, so this passing vessel um, goes by and provides um, the commissioners with the most recent up-to-date information. The most recent up-to-date information now is that that from being from four months ago was that the burning of Jamestown had taken place. Because remember, the burning of Jamestown occurred in uh, mid-September of 1676. Here, the commissioners and their 70-man force arrive in late uh, January 1677. So yeah, we're looking at four months. A lot has happened. Now... You know, it's one thing now we, we had this burning of Jamestown take place. As for Nathaniel Bacon, uh, his promise was that of providing liberty to all whom followed him. Commissioners Barry and Morrison believed that the governor, being Governor William Berkeley, has everything under control. Wouldn't it be fair to assume that if you were either Commissioner Sir John Barry or, Com or uh, Commissioner Francis Morrison, that Governor William Berkeley has everything under control? I would think so, but uh, as like that old saying goes, looks can be uh, either deceiving or, the, or what you see in front of you uh, can be also deceiving as well. Hang tight here for just a moment. Governor Berkeley uh, did meet with uh, Commissioners Barry and Morrison. However, he was a bit um, uneased. He was a bit on, um, on edge. He felt very uncomfortable by the papers and documents from England. In other words, we're not talking about two documents, folks. We are talking about multiple documents that have come from England one document was from October of 1676, which instructed Berkeley on whom he should pardon. Okay, so now he's got to go by a document that that um, that is going to tell him, based upon the king and the king's um, privy council, are going to tell Berkeley whom he ought to be pardoning. Whereas another document, being a printed proclamation from Charles II, dated from October of 1676, provided pardons to all rebels whom submitted within 20 days after its official publication. And if I'm not mistaken, hasn't Governor Berkeley already engaged in, um, in uh, issuing pardons to those whom, um, whom agreed to not take up arms? Uh, even after Nathaniel Bacon died, yes. 
<laughs> but here, Charles II's under this um, assumption that w that the colony is in chaos still. There again, we've got communication issues, but at the same time, remember, folks, the technology we have today was not there in 1676 to resolve uh, a crisis upon the magnitude that we are uh, dealing with. So another, um, as I said before, uh, another document being a printed proclamation from Charles II, um, October 1676 provided pardons to all rebels whom submitted within 20 days after its official publication. And it would be fair to say that the wording was vague. When, when you hear the word vague, in other words, it's, um, it, it's not clear cut. It's, um, it can be defined in term or terms themselves or wording alone can be defined from um, multiple perspectives. So Governor Berkeley himself is not sure if he had the means to prevent giving pardons to some people. One document contained wording of indictments for rebellion stating that it was up to the government in deciding whom would and wouldn't stand for trial. Even that's vague onto itself. And to make matters worse, King Charles II doesn't already know that 23 men have been uh, found guilty of treason and were sentenced to die. So it, it's fair to say that both sides, not just so much both sides, but, uh, but the colony and um, the crown are not seeing eye to eye, all because of a means of um, miscommunication and inadequacies with obtaining proper, um, not just information, but maybe proper intelligence as well. Berkeley, had William Berkeley been caught off guard? Yes. John Good, Nathaniel Bacon's neighbor and follower from Henrico County, had gone about writing a summary of what transpired. Okay. Good was requesting a pardon from uh, Governor Berkeley for his part in the rebellious movement. The summary alone included uh, William Byrd's testimony. Basically, to sum it up in a nutshell, this summary, or rather uh, story, concocted by um, John Goode along with um, William Byrd, was twisted. In other words, it was manipulated. In other words, yeah, they want to tell a story, but by telling a story, they might be able to get it out, might be able to get it across the ocean 3,000 miles faster than, um, than Governor Berkeley. How did Governor Berkeley go about portraying his version of events to Secretary of State Henry Coventry? Well, for starters, he was in a hurried state, given his current health condition being feverous and dealing with uh, fever-like symptoms. He was really, in a sense, in a race against time. And so, therefore, being that he was in a race against time, he really did not have a whole lot of time to um, think things out, to really um, spend enough time um, perhaps meeting with his council one more time. Basically, he knew that he needed to get a story out, and he had to get it done very quick. So, secondly, the story Berkeley himself dictates centered upon two pictures that he sketched. 
one being that of Nathaniel Bacon and the other being of himself. These pictures, it just so happens that they were identical. The rebel, okay, who's the rebel, folks? Nathaniel Bacon. How did uh, William Berkeley describe Nathaniel Bacon? He described him as a man whom was vulnerable to dishonesty. In other words, he was vulnerable to being dishonest, you know, not telling the truth, um, lying, um, you know, saying one thing, maybe doing the opposite, but just had a bad reputation for, um, for not uh, being someone whom you could trust. Uh, deceitfulness, okay? Uh, to me, being deceitful is another form of, uh, another way of describing someone as perhaps being manipulative. In other words, Nathaniel Bacon, as we all know, being a control freak. How about uh, self-advancement? In other words, it's all about him. Selfishness. I, me, myself. As for Governor Berkeley, he portrayed himself as being honorable, truthful, honest, brave, self-sacrificing. In other words, I stayed, um, I stuck to my guns. I adhered to my uh, principles. At least that's what I thought was the case, but as we go along, we might have to be reminded that not only were there two sides to the story, but we might be in for some surprises that might uh, pertain to uh, Governor Berkeley. Berkeley's notes, or findings, I should say, included how Bacon himself won supporters through means of spreading lies to making promises he couldn't keep. You know, it's very easy to persuade people when they are not happy about something. It's very easy to persuade those to become so convinced that that those above are not looking after them, meaning government officials. After all, Bacon himself was able to persuade many uh, below him and from within the upper tier ranks of um, the planter society that the government wasn't looking after them and that uh, William Berkeley only catered to those from within his inner circle and that William Berkeley also preferred giving Indians land over indentured servants whom had been promised um, that after, say, five to seven years of work that they would all receive 100 acres of land well, as we learned from the previous podcast, that uh, 1646 peace treaty nullified the uh, promises that uh, Governor Berkeley uh, had originally uh, bestowed upon all those of uh, indentured servant status. So it is fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon was able to um, persuade those from all ranks of society to come join his cause, given that Nathaniel Bacon, given that William Berkeley, rather, I should say, was a man whom, in the eyes of Bacon and his supporters, viewed as being non-trustworthy. Uh, of course, uh, William Berkeley also, um, per his findings, um, described Bacon as a man whom conducted um, unauthorized um, attacks on Virginia's Indian allies, most notably the Okanichis. Berkeley also noted, uh, per his story, or his version of the story, that Bacon represented all things irreligious. 
you know, it's one thing to, you know, more often than not, we'll say, oh, that person's very religious. But very rarely have I ever come across um, a reading or hearing someone say that that person is irreligious. Was Nathaniel Bacon a man without true religious faith? Yes. His actions alone had constituted a major threat between relations involving church and state. And remember, folks, I've said it before, I'd say it again in Virginia. There's only one official head church, the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England. In 1676, um, people, if you want to practice being a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Baptist, then you need to go outside of Virginia. More than likely, you'll need to go to North Carolina. If you want to practice Catholicism, you go to Maryland. Of course, there are still those in Maryland whom are a little skeptical about the Calverts, but somehow they have all made it work uh, to the north of Virginia through various uh, compromises involving both Catholic and uh, Protestant peoples. But in Virginia, there is really no room at this time for religious compromise. So for Nathaniel Bacon... Yes, his actions alone have constituted a major threat between relations involving church and state. Why is that, folks? Well, church, you know, the Church of England and the state being the government, they work together. We forget that uh, the church, in many instances, was a fourth branch of the government. It really was its own governmental institution. I mean, as the, as the colony of Virginia um, progresses in population, especially during the time when uh, the capital relocates from Jamestown to Williamsburg. Uh, the Church of England, uh, one of its primary functions is obviously to look after the destitute and the poor. Another uh, function is that the church is seeing to it that taxes are being paid. The church is also making sure that people in the community are attending church. By the time, the, uh, church, uh, by the time um, Virginia's capital relocates to Williamsburg, they, while they do expect um, church attendance, they do expect that you attend at least once a month. If you are not attending church on a monthly basis at this time, it will lead to fines. So the Anglican Church does not play around, and when it comes to a crisis like this, they, uh, they know that they have to do—church leaders have to do everything they can to obviously uh, keep order intact. Now— it's bad enough if challenging the church's authority in Virginia uh, takes place. But inciting an, an insurrection which Bacon and his followers conducted dis did disrupt church and state's abilities to keep public tensions at a standstill, given how much extremism had already occurred. Think about it. You have uh, people from the, up, from the upper uh, level ranks of society turning against each other, and then you've got uh, Nathaniel Bacon not only catering to those from the planter aristocracy who are, dis who are disgruntled by Governor Berkeley's actions, but you also got him um, provoking indentured servants and slaves to participate in a rebellion as well. So in other words, Nathaniel Bacon doesn't want to, he doesn't want to so much win, he wants to, to pretty much annihilate everything that uh, the Virginia government has uh, stood for for close to, uh, if not close to 70 years. 
Now, on February the 20th of 1677, the new General Assembly agreed to convene at Green Spring, Berkeley's estate, to support the governor's cause. The Burgesses approved Berkeley's performance. They also petitioned Charles II to keep him on as governor to providing a full-version loyalist account of the rebellion. They also went about implementing all the laws from June of 1676, from the June 1676 assembly session, I should say. And the reason for this was because um, when Nathaniel Bacon had a brief his brief reign, what did he do? He uh, nullified those laws. He basically did not want those laws to go into effect. But now that he's dead, the Virginia General Assembly can now reinstitute those laws and have them on the books. Now, what took place in May of 1677? I'm sure, I'm sure some of you are wondering, what now is so important now four months later in May of 1677? Well, the royal commissioners, uh, being uh, Sir John Barry and Francis Morrison, they met with um, that uh, the Pamunkey Werewonsqua, uh, the female chief, being Kukakoesk. Uh, she was the, um, yes, the Pamunkey um, female chief. They met. They met to work out a new peace treaty, which was uh, done at the British post being Middle Plantation, uh, which would eventually become Williamsburg. Middle Plantation being the site where um, where uh, British the British had um, forts, or I should say posts, uh, stationed along the York and the James River. Really, in a sense, uh, Middle Plantation was an area that sought higher ground in terms of uh, protection from uh, enemy Indians whom were not a part of the trading alliance, as well as other, um, as well as a European nation like Spain, because it still would be considered fair to say that the English are worried that maybe the Spanish could um, could come into their uh, territory along the Chesapeake Bay and uh, perhaps start a war. The good news to report is that it didn't take long, rather it only took a few days for all Indian nations or tribes present at Middle Plantation to accept Charles II as their leader, along with agreeing to fight side by side against all enemy Indians. The 1677 Treaty of Middle Plantation provided Indians, it provided those Indians loyal to the crown better protections against enslavement from within. In other words, what would Indians who are loyal to the crown need to um, be on the lookout for? They don't. They need to be careful not to uh, get um, lured into traps from outsiders. That is, uh, Virginians whom are whom are not looking after them, and not only just um, say stealing their land, but capturing them and selling them into slavery. And that did happen uh, for um, a period of time, folks. It didn't make it right, but it did happen. As for all enemy Indians, the treaty pretty much said that if all any for all existing en enemy Indian nations whom were not a part of the alliance, if they were found to cause trouble, not only would they be captured but sold as slaves. Would you say this treaty, being the 1677 Treaty of Middle Plantation, was it better than, say, what Nathaniel Bacon and his followers had in mind? Sure. This treaty, um, 
was uh, far better because Nathaniel Bacon and his followers, if they had it in their way, if they had it their way, they would have pretty much excluded all Indian nations from uh, having any means of, uh, of forming alliances with, um, with English peoples. In other words, Nathaniel Bacon was, and his followers were so upset that Governor Berkeley had become uh, friends to many Indians and had established alliances that it just really was a threat. It was a threat to those people simply in part because they felt Governor Berkeley had not valued them or um, taken into consideration their wishes or their needs. Was William Berkeley president at the Treaty of Middle Plantation? Believe it or not, folks, he wasn't. Prior to May 29, 1677, which was the day that the treaty itself went into effect, William Berkeley had been recalled have you ever heard um, someone say that the governor got recalled or a um, politician was recalled? What that means, folks, is that the um, that the uh, governmental um, officer got removed from their post. In this case, William Berkeley, he got recalled. He was removed from his gubernatorial post by Charles II and was in... Prior to May 29th of 1677, he's already well out to sea. Where do you think he's going, folks? Is he going to England or Scotland? <laughs> he's, going back, he's going back to London, England. So Berkeley arrived to London, England in June of 1677 upon waiting to meet directly with Charles II. And during that time, Berkeley wrote many of letters appealing to the king. It sounds like he and the king are not on good terms. It sounds like the king has already made up his mind. Is it fair to say that even the king himself could be showing signs of um, favoritism? In other words, whenever I think of um, not showing favoritism, there's a, a term. I don't know if it uh, really was even in existence at this time, but there is a term called voir dire, V-O-I-R-D-I-R-E, two words, Voir dire, it means showing impartiality. In other words, you're not favoring one side over the other. But I have to wonder here if, in fact, Charles II really is uh, showing favoritism. To who? That's a good question. So anyways, um, William Berkeley has um, written many of letters appealing to the king. One that I thought was worth mentioning, this one letter enta entailed... Berkeley's years serving as Virginia's governor. How many years did uh, Berkeley serve as Virginia's governor altogether, folks? I'm going to give you a, a range. It's between 30 and 40. What number do you think that could be between the range of 30 to 40? The answer is 35. He served as Virginia's governor for 35 years, but he did it in two stints. Berkeley noted in this letter that he rescued Virginia from near collapse when he, during his first stint beginning in 1641. And he rescued Virginia from a near collapse and turned it around into a prosperous colony which contributed roughly 100,000 pounds per year in customs revenues. Okay, customs revenues, folks. Do you think that pertains to taxes? Yes. Customs revenues, if you want a good 101 interpretation, 
is those taxes imposed on all importation and exportation of goods. Importation, uh, receiving imported goods, uh, meaning you're taking them in. Exportation of goods, you are shipping them out. Berkeley also emphasized in another letter his peaceful relations with the Indian nations prior to Bacon's arrival. He also stated how his life had drastically changed once Bacon arrived into Virginia. You can't blame him for mentioning that. He also talked about how he oversaw the rebellion coming to an end. Sadly for Berkeley, Charles II had rushed to judgment. He showed no compassion. So, who do you think uh, Charles II has sided with? I mean... It might be fair to say that he is siding with Nathaniel Bacon. Of course, the problem is that Nathaniel Bacon's dead. But could it possibly be that maybe Charles II could be siding with followers of Nathaniel Bacon, whom are still alive and perhaps have written letters ahead of time to where perhaps Charles II got those letters before getting Berkeley's um letters or or perhaps even wanting to take Berkeley's uh, side of the story into consideration. Had someone else told a better story which gave William Berkeley all the more reason to be angry? Yes. It's very likely that um, a member of Berkeley's council and that would have been uh, Thomas Swan and the reason I mentioned Thomas Swan is because I remember sharing with you all from a previous podcast that Thomas Swan had agreed to um, take up allegiance with Nathaniel Bacon because if he hadn't, then he would have seen his property be uh, confiscated uh, along with um, perhaps becoming a prisoner. Thomas Swan did not want to risk any of that. So he had advised commissioners of his signing Bacon's oath which meant his property got spared by rebel extremists. This information alone from Thomas Swan was enough to help persuade the commissioners into believing that Berkeley, William Berkeley now, is the real culprit. March of 1677, commissioners concluded that the Loyalists were primary culprits behind what had taken place at Jamestown. They felt greater troubles began around rebellions, around the ending point that the rebellion finally um, came to an end, including when the commissioners themselves had first arrived. Okay, William Berkeley and his followers had tried and punished rebels with military justice. Okay, they... (laughs) Went as far as, um, as I said earlier, they found, you know, 23 men guilty, and those men were um, sentenced to death, uh, all in the name of having been found guilty of treason. I mean, treason is a felony. Treason is, you know, a, a serious enough offense that if you're found guilty, you will die. Now, despite the fact that um, prisoners were captured, uh, I mean, how do I say it? Berkeley and his followers had tried and punished rebels with military justice. Despite the fact that prisoners were captured after rebellions end in a time of peace. Okay, so it's one thing to have captured uh, rebels whom were not sentenced to death. 
but the fact that they were captured after the after the rebellion had ended would it be fair to say that if you were a rebel dissident and you had taken up an oath of allegiance to um to um how do i say it to reswear your allegiance to king and country that you should no longer um be tried for previous offense the problem is that nathaniel bacon felt the need to uh put those rebel um troops in their place to where he went a little bit further so to the commissioners they find that this is just a little unnecessary in other words you've already tried and punished rebels but why are but why are you capturing other prisoners after the rebellion has ended and they've already um res they've already taken an oath of allegiance to um to um, swear their uh, loyalties back to king and country. It's a double-edged sword right there onto itself. Now, who carried King Charles II's direct order? This is important. His name is Colonel Herbert Jeffries. It's important because for Colonel Jeffries, the order he is carrying, it contains information that pretty much says that Berkeley is to return right away to England. Okay, so if William Berkeley is being asked to return to England, who's going to serve as interim governor? Well, the problem is that um, Charles II never instituted in, the, in his order that Colonel Jeffries is carrying. He never said for um, Colonel Jeffries to serve as the interim governor. Well, what does Colonel Jeffries do? He does the exact opposite. He serves as interim governor. But William Berkeley has failed to comply. He's failed to comply with the direct order of Colonel Jeffries. He sought an opinion from his council, and the council unanimously agreed that he was to stay on as governor and that he could come back to England on his terms. In other words, he doesn't have to adhere to what... Um, Charles II instructs. I mean, in other words, you know, why isn't Charles II overseas? Why isn't he there in person to tell the governor, hey, you need to come back now? The commissioners accused Berkeley of providing, they had a fair number of accusations against Berkeley. One of them was that they accused Berkeley of providing excessive riches uh, and favors to his friends along with allowing loyalists to destroy rebel properties, okay? Okay, if, the, if they were found guilty, uh, that's one thing, but were they allowed to destroy rebel properties without the consent of the rebel um, men themselves? I don't remember um, learning about anything that would have um, allowed Governor Berkeley and his men to, um, to confiscate a rebel's uh, a rebel uh, person's property without their consent. In other words, okay, it was bad enough that the uh, loyalists went about destroying rebel property, but they were exempt from facing consequences. Okay, <laughs> yeah, you destroy someone's property, but yet you're not, but yet they're not being held accountable. What does that tell you right there? You know, on one end, we can, you know, scream and shout, oh, how dare these people um, set Jamestown on fire. 
but when the government comes and does something in terms of destroying um, property along with uh, being exempt from their own actions, that's where the double-edged sword comes into play. It's not a pretty one, but it, we should be reminded of the fact that uh, that you know it's one thing to find one party guilty in 1676, 1677, but for the... Um, institution above to be exempt from facing consequences uh, as a result of their own internal actions. Yeah, that's also a red flag right there. Berkeley was also um, accused of manipulating rebel trials, but yet went about pardoning some men while seeing to it that their estates were confiscated on the grounds of treason, only for Berkeley and his men to use the, um, to use the property or the items that were confiscated on the rebel um, uh, people's properties, those uh, tangible items were used at uh, Berkeley and his um, men's expense. In other words, Nathan William Berkeley did not properly um, comply with report on stolen goods. In other words, the commissioners have a right to know what was seized, but they also have a right to know if the seizure of goods was done lawfully. It might be fair to say that that this is a good example of violation of search and seizure. In other words, did Governor Berkeley and his uh, loyalist um, band, did they have probable cause to go on to uh, a person's uh, property and search the property and did they have probable cause to destroy it? No, they didn't have any probable cause. So, here, to me, the, this is a good example of um, ethics gone wrong. I wanted to believe that Governor Berkeley was a, a good man, but even the best of leaders whom have done a good job for so long have, their, have flaws of their own. And we see it today, as much as we don't want to, but... We do. I mean, it's been that way since the beginning of time. Had Governor Berkeley offended the king's commissioners? Yes. He was adamant in inspecting their set of instructions. In other words, he was just, it was his way or nobody else's way, but he was, you know, adamant in making sure that their set of instructions were real and that they weren't out to um, to destroy him, that they weren't out weren't seen as a means of uh, manipulation. Come mid-April, when uh, Governor Berkeley was booking a passage for his return to England, he demanded to take his case directly to England versus letting the commissioners report their findings on rebellion. In other words, why have the commissioners do their uh, findings when they weren't even there for the entire time? You know, Berkeley may have a point there, but at the same time, he isn't interfering with what we would call a criminal investigation. Charles II, the instructions that Charles II wanted all along from William Berkeley were really the following. Per the orders that Charles II had sent, he called upon um, William Berkeley to... Um, to have new assembly elections, which did take place uh, in 1676, 
he re requested that uh, special courts be convened um, along with negotiating an Indian treaty. Once these tasks were completed, Charles II wanted Berkeley to report back to England. Well, did um, William Berkeley ever get to meet with Charles II face-to-face? Uh, -face? No, he didn't. I have some sad news to report. On July the 9th of 1677, William Berkeley died while waiting to tell his version directly to Charles II. I believe I remember telling you all from a previous podcast a while back that uh, William Berkeley was born in, seven, in um, 1605, two years before the English officially set foot in the New World with their first uh, permanent settlement in Jamestown, Virginia. So William Berkeley lived to be 72 years old, which to me is considered old age for that day and time. But it is fair to say that Governor Berkeley died. It probably is fair to say that he died given just how much he um, endured during the last three years of his life, most notably from the time Nathaniel Bacon first arrived onto um, the scene in Virginia until the time the rebellion itself ended with Nathaniel Bacon's death, but also with the hostilities that ensued, even without Bacon's um, physical uh, presence. So he died. So William Berkeley died on July 9, 1677, while waiting to tell his version directly to Charles II. He was laid to rest on July 13th at a parish church nearby his brother's home. Now, is... William Berkeley's wife, Frances, is she in England or is she in Virginia? Believe it or not, folks, she's in Virginia. She is still residing at Green Spring. She wrote to her husband on August 9th, unaware that her husband died one month prior to the exact same date. I can't imagine um, Frances Berkeley writing to her husband on August 9th, but yet not knowing that he had already died. Think about it. Nobody notified her. Of course, if the only way they could have notified her was to have written her a letter, send it 3,000 miles across the ocean with the hopes that it would probably get there in at least five or six weeks' time, depending on, um, weather, depending on weather and uh, wind conditions that would be suited for a um, vessel to uh, carry the letter and other important essentials. But I just can't imagine not knowing that here you are writing to your significant loved one, but yet you don't know that they're even still alive. Our final question for this uh, podcast segment is the following. What other issues remained prevalent in the aftermath of William Berkeley's death? For starters, uh, the Indian nations as far north as the five nations in New York, or what we call the Iroquois Nation, to Indian tribes like the Susquehannocks, the Okanichis, Pamunkeys, and Piscataways all became concerned about further English encroachments upon uh, their ancestral lands that were previously protected uh, prior to and after Nathaniel Bacon's death. Another big concern had to do with the planter aristocracy. Planters faced issues from within their class status, meaning um, 
those whom were either loyal to Berkeley or loyal to Bacon, because, you know, not all the planters were loyal on one side. They they were pretty much split 50-50 in terms of where their allegiances were going to stand. So the planters faced issues from not only from within their class status, but also with taxation, political power, labor shortages. But what did the planters themselves need control over more than anything else? They need control over land. That is land that's not already in their possession, land that is already in the hands of Indians, most notably uh, like the Pamunkeys, whom uh, benefited um, significantly uh, from the uh, Treaty of uh, 1677, uh, along with, I should say, the Nansamans, or the Nansamans, uh, as well as the uh, Werasakoyak. So for the uh, English um, planter aristocracy, give the, yes, land that is not already in their possession is a huge um, red flag for them because further access to unclaimed lands meant greater means for men. Think about if, for, if, if men can get, if uh, men in the planter class uh, ranks of society can get um, access to unclaimed lands, it means that they, it pretty much means that there is a greater chance for these men to uh, attract a significant other, being a wife, and by being able to attract um, a significant other, being a, a wife, um, meaning that he has land to offer, that also means that uh, families will be established. And not only can, will, would families be established, but um, achieving status. Why is achieving status, um, top-tier status, important? It may not be top-tier status, but achieving some level of status. Why is that important for the planter aristocracy? It's important because when a man achieves a status, he is, a, he is pretty much um, earned full manhood. Without land, a man's status has no value. Land gave a man himself true identity, a sense of belonging within the community. So in order for, um, for Virginia to thrive or to um, get back to its uh, glory days prior to Bacon's Rebellion, they need the planter aristocracy, or really those who want to be in the planter class, they need to have access to land, but they need land that is not already in their possession. You know, it's one thing to have land, but we have to keep in mind that, you know, given that tobacco is Virginia's lucrative cash crop, after about three or four plantings, that soil becomes so, de so depleted to where the nutrients can't be replenished, and that means that um, more land has to be cleared, and it also means conflict. Conflict with who, folks? The in Indians. And it also means um, tensions will escalate to where uh, treaties get broken, and it resor results in going to war. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment, and um, what I will point out here is that when I'm on the air again next um my goal is to try to do at least two or three more podcast um, segments on this um, topic. And the reason I say that number is because many of us are now beginning to wonder, 
how do we go about ending this um, topic series? Because it sounds as though we're not at a point where we can um, achieve uh, true peace. But we should keep in mind that peace itself has always been fragile, but during this time of upheaval, even after Nathaniel Bacon's death, there still isn't true 100% peace. There might be peace to those whom uh, prevailed in the 1677 Treaty of Middle Plantation, but there's no guarantee that that treaty itself could still be valid five years from, from the time uh, after 1677. Nothing's for certain. Um, so we have to keep in mind that, um, that while, yes, one um, extremist has died, we also had to keep in mind that there were those whom were willing to keep the fight alive. We also have to keep in mind that, um, that just because William Berkeley uh, did everything that was to his um, disposal in restoring order to Virginia, it didn't mean that uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean that there was unity. It's fair to say that there probably was definitely rush to judgment. It, I, I almost have to wonder, were there people in England high up in the inner circle with Charles II whom conspired to see to it that uh, William Berkeley was no longer um, uh, the head um, the head guru or the head uh, man running the show in Virginia. We don't know, but anything is possible. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again next, and when I am, I we will certainly uh, continue to uh, discuss uh, information that is uh, relevant pertaining to this series. Thank you for your time as always, and um, continue to have a um, good rest of your week. Take care for now.